Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Atlanta's professional women's basketball team, the Atlanta Dream, had a great run last year, all the way to the WNBA Finals. Atlanta with a chance to win it. Down by one. Here's Montgomery. Five seconds. Four. Angel for the win! Head coach Nikki Collin has been leading the dream since fall of 2017. The team is now gearing up for the upcoming season, beginning this Friday. I spoke with Nikki earlier this year and asked her about the challenge of leading a pro sports team with the ball in the woman's court, and she does it all in heels. Welcome, Nikki. Thank you. It's great to be here. To make it big in basketball, people do tend to start quite young, but you had your sights on playing tennis, I understand, when you were younger. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, started playing tennis in about second grade and just, I don't know, somehow identified with that whole Chris Everett, Martina Navratilova um, competition and just wanted to be the next Chris Everett and happened to live in a neighborhood that bordered a country club so could get on my bike and ride my bike over to the courts. And so, yeah, I mean, by that dream kind of fell apart in the fourth grade when we moved to Wisconsin and there was like one small, <laughs> no tennis you know, <laughs> tennis court in the, the whole town. So that that's kind of when basketball started to take off for me. So when did, how did you start with basketball? Was it the pickup games in the park or was it at school? Yeah, no, it was actually neither. I I uh, I had played maybe YWCA, but I wasn't very good in about second, third grade, uh, just as something that you did with other kids. But uh, when we moved to Wisconsin, you know, we had a big cement driveway with a basketball hoop in our driveway. And so it just kind of was one of those things. You're the new kid in a, a small town and, you know, got a ball. And my dad, you know, started making me work out there. And it was, it was kind of right there. So I played... Um, I can still point to, you know, everybody has a, you talk about those aha moments, you know, and, and I was watching actually my fifth grade daughter in the driveway dribble between her legs the other day. And it, it took me back to that moment because I realized that, you know, fifth grade, I played in a girls, boys, like rec league and in a game where uh, it was two undefeated teams. And I wasn't one of the best players, but I'd gotten to the point where I was solid, but I hit the game-winning shot. And I can actually point to that moment and say, I think that's when I fell in love with basketball, and it became kind of a part of my DNA from, from then on. So after that aha moment, when did you think, I really do have a future in basketball? You know, I just, I think I came out of the womb pretty competitive. Um, So no matter what I did, I wanted to be the best. Um, I always struggled with losing. It didn't matter what it was. And so I I think it was then that, you know, I just got a taste of success with it. And so that kind of created this, I think, desire in me. I just knew I wanted to be a really good basketball player. So it kind of started with that. It started with the driveway, but, you know, started going um, after school each day with my dad to the gym and getting shots up and and thinking about where that would lead me. And and I never really thought past college. I mean, the pro leagues didn't exist when I was in Mm -hmm. middle school. So, you know, it was really about you know, can I get a college scholarship to Stanford? But I didn't even know what that meant then. It was just about playing at the highest level. It was about watching those players on TV at that time when you were just starting to see women's basketball on TV at a high level and think, someday that might be me. Let's go back to that boy-girl rec league. I I saw a poll that the number one career field that little boys dream of when they're growing up is professional sports. 
for girls, sports don't even make the list. Although I will say doctor was number one choice, which I think some progress has been made. But has the door to professional sports for female athletes been closed for so long that they don't even consider it? Well, I think, you know, when I was that age, what I the only thing I thought I knew about my life was that I was going to be famous. I didn't know how. I just, I think I genuinely thought somehow, some way I'm going to be famous. I remember moving in the fourth grade and, and uh, my class doing a party for me and, uh, you know, them writing this little play about my life. And, you know, they had predicted that I would be the first female president. Whoa. And so there's no doubt that even at that age that I kind of had that sense of, Somehow I'm going to make it big. I don't quite know how, um, but absolutely. I think that was part of the Chris Everett attraction. Like I was seeing her on TV. I could see it. I could, I couldn't exactly touch it, um, but I saw that it was real. And so I think what we've got now is with professional sports and women being in professional sports, there's now a path. Uh, young girls can see it, can't even touch it now getting to the games and, and can see that it's a possibility. So you were part of that. This is Title IX, happened in 1972. Uh, Women's athletics, it was passed. It mandated equal treatment of the sexes in sports. How did that change the game for women's professional sports? I think it's, it's just opportunity. It gave opportunity. And I think the confusing part sometimes for people about Title IX is what it really means. And it doesn't mean that um, it, it's not always apples to apples, it's not always because this person gets this amount of money that this person get, should get this amount of money as well. But it, it gave opportunity. You know, when I talked to my mom, who I think some of my athleticism I got from my mom, but she grew up in a small town in Michigan and cheerleading and band were, you know, her only options. And so, you know, I it, it's hard to say because it's not like I think my mom throws a ball um, like John Smoltz or anything. But. Uh, she just didn't have any of those opportunities. And it, it kind of makes me sad to think about because I will say even growing up in an environment where I typically played boys sports until I was in high school or played with boys. I played Little League Baseball all the way through the eighth grade, was the only girl in the league. No one ever told me I couldn't do something or I wasn't allowed to do it. So, you know, I definitely I think I'm a Title IX baby in terms of not really understanding what it was like. Uh, before that opportunity existed. Were there other girls playing at that time, or was it just you? I was the only girl in in Little League Baseball. Mm. Um, You know, my town had slow-pitch softball, and I did not consider that an option. I'm speaking with the Atlanta Dream head coach, Nikki Collin. It's her second season with the team. We're reeling back and learning a little bit about her life, a really directed life from the sounds of it. And Before you came to the WNBA, you spent nine seasons. This was coaching on the collegiate level. So learning the ropes, I guess. Did you ever think that coaching would be your career goal? Uh, Certainly not when I was in college. I I was very, um, you know, I was naturally athletic, had good hand-eye coordination. But I think the reason I was good because of my work ethic. Um, And, you know, I I can point back to when I was a collegiate player and having teammates that were naturally 6'2", 6'3", ran like deer, you know, just and I remember thinking if they worked half as hard as I work they're you know, they could write their path in basketball. Um, But, you know, I had something in my gut, something in my belly. And but I, I really thought coaching would be a tough path for me because, you know, I wasn't sure I could coach people that didn't want it as bad as I want it, who didn't, you know, didn't want to be good um, at the level that I thought they were capable of. And so I, I just wasn't sure I could understand that. 
Um, but then when I, after I played professionally for a year and, and it was real world time, um, you know, and I had to make a decision about what to do with my life. And I actually took a job in engineering, but hadn't started it yet when I got the opportunity to take a coaching job. And the more I thought about it, the more I just realized like basketball wasn't out of my system at that time, you know, that I had to pursue it. I had to see if it was something that I was capable of being good at, Um, you know, and over time here I am. What did you want in a coach as a player? Accountability, uh, someone that could truly communicate with me. Um, I'm very much a living in the gray area person. I, I struggle probably the most to coach players who are black and white. I don't think the world uh, revolves that way. I don't think sports revolve that way. Um, but some people need more direction. So, you know, guidance, trust, loyalty, uh, you know, someone that believed in me. You know, I, I made a change. I, I went to Purdue, uh, transferred to Marquette, um, had great success as a team at Purdue, a Final Four, an Elite Eight, had great teammates, but just wanted to be more impactful on the floor, wanted those minutes, wanted someone to believe I was the person to lead our team, especially from the point guard position. And so, you know, the move was about that, about that opportunity to show that I was capable of showcasing a lot more than I was ever able to do. You went and played in Greece at the in the professional league there. Why Greece? Well, I... You know, when I got out of college, I tried out for the Detroit Shock, um, which moved then to Tulsa, which is now Dallas, but um, and really wanted to play in the WNBA. You know, it had started. I thought it was a real possibility for me, uh, was cut in kind of the last round of cuts in Detroit and thought, I need to go give this this professional thing a shot. You know, I'd had a number of teammates and friends that were playing overseas and you know, their reasons were different than mine. I wanted to go overseas because I wanted another shot at playing in the United States. They went overseas to see the world, mm. you know, and, and to do it playing basketball and have someone pay them, you know. And so for me, it was about talking to my agent about getting me in the best possible league that I could play in with the best possible competition. And while there certainly were other leagues that were better, um, you know, beggars can't be choosers kind of thing. And so, you know, it was a good league. It wasn't a great team. Um, but, you know, ironically that year, there were two professional leagues, the ABL and the WNBA. The ABL folded while I was over in Greece. And I kind of knew at that point that there weren't going to be a lot of spots for a 5-5 point guard in a league that had eight teams to start, you know, and you had a league, the ABL, that was a more traditional league because it was a winter league. It paid higher salaries. You had a lot of really, really talented players that were going to be moving into the WNBA at that point. So then coming back to that completely new universe of what was going on in women's professional basketball in the U.S. Was it a come down for you to think of coaching rather than being a player? In some ways, ironically, it still is. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I always say that, you know, I watch Vince Carter, um, who's only two years younger than me, you know, running up and down the court for the Hawks now. And I sometimes I think, wow, if I could still be doing that. Like there's just some joy, some something about the competitiveness of playing and the joy of playing that's different when you're in coaching. At the same time, I think I've learned to truly embrace it. I know it's something that I'm confident about. I, I know it's something that um, I think I knew from an early, from early on in coaching that I was a good communicator, that I found ways to communicate with different types of players. And so, you know, I, I don't know that it's a, it's a come down as much as it's just a, it's just a different avenue to, to be a part of a sport that you just 
love and feel like you like my whole life is defined by that moment I hit that game winning shot because where basketball has taken me from around the world um, in coaching and playing. Um, you know, I met my husband through coaching. I have three kids. You know, basketball has kind of been that thing that has driven the path of my entire life. But as a coach, when you're uh, you're wearing a lot of hats, you have to be, you know, part mentor, part team mom, I'm guessing, therapist, a leader. What are these off-the-court roles like? Well, I think it's a little less in the pros than it is in college. I think a, a huge part of coaching in college is that mentor relationship. I, I think when you're in the pros, you suddenly now have you're, you're working with adults, you know, players that are getting paychecks that are going home and doing their own thing and, and have interests outside. They're not just going to class in college. But I will tell you, I think I became a better coach when I had kids hmm. because I started to understand coaching from a different perspective and communication from a different perspective and happiness and, you know, a lot of little things that way and communicating with parents of recruits and and so, you know, it's important to me. And I think most of the players know that I'm, I'm very relationship-based. I'm not outcome-based. Um, while I won't keep a job very long if the outcome isn't consistently good, and I understand that, that I think part of why we were able to turn it as quickly as, as we were here in Atlanta is that, you know, we, we built a good culture. And, you know, our players like playing together. They knew I had their back, um, that I genuinely care about them off the court. And quite frankly, I'm just one of those people that's not afraid to hug them. Um, I tell them I love them on a daily basis. I just, you know, I kind of don't let those things slip through the gaps. I'm speaking with the Atlanta Dream head coach, Nikki Collin. This is her second season with the team, and we're going to hear more about her transition to the WNBA and her leadership role with the Atlanta Dream team. Stay with us. This is On Second Thought. This is On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. The Atlanta Dream was founded in 2008 and has reached the WNBA Finals three times since. The Dream's head coach, Nikki Collin, is my guest. We're talking about how she experienced her time as a player and then coached at the college level and then ended up coaching in the WNBA. There are particular challenges for women's sports. The New York Times reports that the WNBA received just below 200,000 viewers on ESPN. And then average pay. Several athletes have been vocal about inequality, about issues over the past few decades. Uh, average pay now about $79,000 a year. Players who are lower on the totem ball m might even have a hard time making ends meet. So for you, is it hard to get your players to practice hours and hours a day when paid comparatively less than, let's say, male athletes? I truly understand both sides of the equation here. I understand that our players, um, you know, don't get paid a comparable salary to what people would think with the NBA at the same time. You know, we don't have a lot of franchises that turn a profit. And so, you know, you certainly have money coming in through um, TV deals with ESPN, um, there's just not a bunch of money sitting around, you know, that's not being paid out. Our owners are not getting rich, you know, off of owning these professional teams. I will say that, you know, when you look at our league, you, you talk about the NBA and they, they have a soft cap at about $100 million, where we have a hard cap at about $1 million. So you look at, you know, we, we basically pay our players 1% of what an average NBA roster looks like. Now, 
There are so many factors in that. There are TV contracts. There are dollars, you know. I mean, when I think about how our league needs to grow, we need sponsorships. We need businesses who believe in what we do because that's where the money is. Um, you know, the it's not always in the marketing and, and recognition, although I think, you know, continuing to market our players at a high level is important. But I think it's getting businesses to believe in what we do and want to support it. And so, you know, they're just our two sides of the coin. Now, do I think I have a hard time getting my players to practice hard? I think there are certain days that I do. And I, I'm sure there are certain days that $17 million men's players don't want to practice either. You know, I don't think the players get up on a daily basis and say, I'm not getting paid enough to do this. You know, I just, you know, our players, while I, I, I don't like that they ha have to do this or feel that they have to do this, you know, they go overseas and they make money over there. So, you know, most of them are making, you know, would probably, you know, if you think about the world in general or even the United States, they'd still be in the top probably 1%, you know, when you figure in what they make. Now, when you're a basketball player, you have a finite amount of time to make money. You know, you can't play basketball when you're 60. So, you know, they have to take advantage of the amount of time that they have to play. If we can observe, there are many very talented men who've made it to the NBA, get a huge salary, and the inflation of ego and sense of invulnerability can swell along with that. Do you think that's a downfall of these mega salaries for even super talented players? Well, I think you you, you certainly I think it's hard to not understand the power of money. You know, we've seen how I don't it doesn't matter if it's professional sports or it's wealthy people in general, um, you know, them fall from grace because they got greedy. And I think that it's it's no different that, you know, any person needs to stay grounded in their principles and what got them to that point in order to be successful. I, I think that we can look at, at professional sports and, and a lot of these males that are making a lot of money and, and the percentage of them that are bankrupt by 45 because they don't know how to manage it and they don't know how to live with it. Um, and that's in some ways a bigger concern to me than, than their egos, that they're making these huge salaries and they're spending it as if they're going to make it forever. Um, and truly getting, you know, because you're talking about so often, you think about the NBA, most of these players are, are 19. Now they're playing one year of college basketball and then going pro at 19. And they've had handlers their whole life, um, you know, kind of telling them what to do and telling them how good they are. Um, and so it, it, it really isn't the real world. I mean, I, I can tell you being around that you know, when you when you're used to personal chefs and you charter everywhere and, you know, what they do, they, they entertain. They entertain us. Right. I mean, these guys are they play sports, but they entertain us and they're amazing at their craft um, and they certainly have all the resources at their disposal. So the question is, when you don't have the resources anymore, are you prepared for life after that, that always to me is a bigger concern to me than, you know, do they get big egos? Because I think in some ways part of their ego is what's part, part of what makes them good. Hmm. You know, it keeps that edge. They think they're good. Um, you know, and, and our sport is very mental. Professional sports in general are mental. And you have to believe that you're the best when you step between the lines. So that's a hard thing to coach, isn't it? You know, somebody who believes that they're the best. How do you negotiate that kind of, that's a psychological dynamic, a power dynamic in many ways. 
It very much is. And I think it's getting, especially obviously in a team sport, uh, getting each individual to believe that collectively, you know, that, that they're better. I think that, you know, if you want to be considered one of the greatest athletes, you don't want to be one of the greatest athletes that never won a championship, right? You know, I mean, how many how many times did we even talk about Phil Mickelson? You know, how many events he had won before he won his first major? Or, you know, you just have lots of those instances. So it's getting them to understand. It was so very easy um, when I came to town because they, they'd come off a disappointing year where they didn't meet expectations and they knew they were better. Um, so I don't think it was hard for them to buy into giving a little to get a lot, you know, but I think that's a, that's part of it is getting them to understand that they can still be individually successful and get individual accolades, but it's going to be better if the team's better. We mentioned salary is one of the big challenges for the league. What are some of the other ones? I think sometimes it's, you know, obviously um, last year we had some travel issues. You know, we're, we're not a league that that charters or is probably going to get anywhere near that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you look at the cost, it's it's, you know, it's just hard to even to move a team from place it, to place. Obviously. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, sometimes it's, it's the travel. It's the um, it's the shortness of the season. It's the fact that our players play year round because they'll, and so sometimes we have players that show up late to training camp or are late because they're not going to leave their Turkish team before the end of the season. Cause they're making a half a million with their Turkish team and 70 with us. So what, you know, where do we fall, you know, and as much as I think our players put great value on playing the WNBA because they know it's the most competitive league in the world, you know, it, it's almost like, we're the second job sometimes. Hmm. And so I think pay goes into that, you know, that perception that that's how it is. And, and so that, that's a lot. Sometimes it's facilities. Um, you know, it, it can be a big thing. You know, we play in the summer, so we don't have some of the overlap when the league started, all the teams were owned by NBA teams. And so it was a way to use those arenas in the summer. Now we only five of our 12 teams are still owned by NBA teams and the others are individually owned. So, you know, it's negotiating those contracts in facilities and practice facilities and things like that. Getting better pay in Turkey or in Greece or other places. Why do you think that is? What's your theory on why the game, the women's game is venerated, supported, paid for differently? As as you mentioned, the best players are here in the WNBA. When you think about professional basketball overseas, they have a totally different system. So they don't have college systems. They have club systems. And so not unlike people in Georgia grow up in either their alma mater as Georgian, so they continue to support the University of Georgia as their alma mater, but that's their team. Well, overseas, these teams these players play for, these clubs, that's how people grow up. In, In Turkey, you grow up and you're a Fenerbahce you know, person, you're, you know, and so it's, it's about, there's money coming in and there's individual ownership that, that, you know, for tax reasons, for a lot of different reasons, pay Americans to come over. When you watch a game, it's not as if when you watch a game in Turkey and I watch EuroLeague games every Wednesday, EuroCup games Thursday, like I am watching these games overseas. They're not putting 12,000 people. These facilities don't even hold that. You know, they might not have more people than we have at our game, but they they don't have the same cost for facilities. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't have. And so to me, it's just more if if we could compare it. Their system is 
almost aligns more like our college system where you have money coming into these clubs and this built in loyalty and camaraderie. Um, And so it's just it's different. It's just a totally different system. We're digging into the behind the scenes of the Atlanta Dream and the WNBA with Nikki Collins. She's the head coach. It's her second season at the team. Uh, and of course, the part of the system here, part of what makes it work is the stars. Big part stars, part of the formula, makes a professional sports team tick. They help win games. They help sell tickets. And I think little girls need a name to put on the back of the jer- those jerseys they wear for games. For years, the dream and a lot of those jerseys referenced Angel McCautry. So what has her star power meant for the dream? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the the absolute turnaround from their first year uh, when they just had a part of the supplemental draft to, you know, when Angel came on board, the quick turnaround. You know, clearly she was a player that made a difference on the basketball court. Um, I think she adopted Atlanta. She's from Baltimore. I actually helped recruit her to Louisville, and my husband was the head coach there uh, when she was Big East Player of the Year. So there was already, for me coaching her, there was there was a background story um, coming in. Uh, but yeah, I mean, she is genuine. She loves to play basketball. She had star power because she was so athletic, but she also oftentimes played her best basketball in the biggest moments. Her her playoff average is still the highest in WNBA history, even though the dream, you know, were swept into uh, WNBA finals, getting to the finals, being Eastern Conference champions. Um, so, you know, I think she turned turned this place around in terms of success um, and still would like to see, you know, to be able to hold a trophy up ultimately. We are living in the post-Me Too and Time's Up movement time. And the voice for women, the ignored voices are being heard in a different way. There are many high profile athletes who've spoken out about this. I'm thinking of tennis star Serena Williams called out sexism and racism in professional tennis. People on your team behind the Black Lives Matter movement, no compunction about that. But do you think the voice against sexism is as strong? It's funny because I think about you know, my kids, my kids are 13, 13 and 11. And I don't think my girls think there is a thing that they can't do uh, in this world, you know, and they just, they have no blinders on, or maybe they have total blinders on when it comes to homosexuality or so many of these issues that, you know, for an older generation were issues. Like, you know, when I look at my 13 year old and my 11 year old, they just don't see the world that way. They don't, they wonder if you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend and there's just no judgment, right? Like it's, it's, it's really cool. And so I think that so much of this sexism stems from a place that is, is truly the minority and not the majority anymore. But with with social media, with the world we live in, they can make their voices loud, you know, because there's a platform for everyone to be an expert on anything. Um, And maybe sometimes we listen too much. Um, But, you know, I, I think that's at the root of some of this, you know, this whole, you know, I could beat you in a one on one game, you know, our our players, we don't pretend to think that we could take our best player in the WNBA and that they would be an NBA all-star. Like, our players are smart enough to know that that's not who they are. Like, we, we as females, we're not created equal to men. We were created differently and wonderfully, and, you know, but 
and and we're incredibly athletic and our players are incredibly athletic, but they're not NBA players. They're not 5'11 versions of the 6'7 NBA player. And so, you know, so much of the pushback and the sexism from our side is from people who just are never going to appreciate what we do. Would it be a dream of yours that you never get asked questions like that again? <laughs> you know, that, that it doesn't become, this is a woman's game compared to the men's game. You know, that it isn't always the otherizing, I guess. Of- Absolutely. I, th- I think when there, when there isn't a reference point that you like us because you, I mean, for some reason in tennis, Serena Williams serve, you know, speed is not compared to Nadal's. Like it just now, what do they think? This woman is incredibly powerful and wow. I mean, but you know, it's not compared as much. So, you know, absolutely. I'd love to think that our league, our game um, could stand on its own because I think it's, it's, an incredible game, you know? I mean, if you love basketball, I think you'd love the WNBA. I know it's a business. You got to make money. You got to pay people. You got to take care of them. But your dream for the dream on the court and in the stands and in the community. So many things. Um, Part of moving here, most WNBA coaches don't actually live where they work. Um, And so moving to market has has really brought me closer to the core of what you're talking about. It's it's who is the dream? Who do we want to be? Um, you know, I want to be connected in this community. I absolutely love what I do. I know that ultimately, if we're successful, that I can probably get a higher paying job in college, but I love coaching pros. Um, and so for me, the dream, I mean, we want to bring a championship to Atlanta. There's no doubt that is a both a, a franchise goal and quite frankly, a personal goal to be able to, you know, hold a championship trophy up and have a parade and, you know, all those things. So I think on the basketball side, it's that. But I also think think that, you know, when I took this job, one of the things I told our fans is that win or lose, I want them to be proud of our effort and I want them to be proud of how we act when we play. And so continuing to understand that, you know, we're going to be good citizens and we're going to be role models and, and we're going to care about this community. And so, you know, I, I, I want to matter in Atlanta. I say there's six million people and, you know, when we were at Georgia Tech and, and there were 8,000 people, it's like surely there's 8,000 people in this 6 million, you know, people city that, that can care about women's basketball on any given night. And so, you know, I, I want to see, see people support this team um, because I think these players deserve it. Nikki Collin, really, really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That is Atlanta Dream head coach Nikki Collins sharing her reflections as the team's leader. Their season starts this Friday, and you can get details on tickets at our website, gpbnews.org. Coming up, Georgia's high school graduation rate continues to increase. On Second Thought gets a lesson on innovative new models for mentorship. Stay with us for more on Second Thought.
We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. It is high season for commencement celebrations. The Georgia Department of Education says 74 school districts across the state recorded 2018 graduation rates at or above 90 percent putting the overall high school graduation rate at an all-time high. Mentorship programs could be one factor, and we're hearing from a few innovators in the field. Kimberlyn Bolton is Operations Director from Reimagine ATL. Hello, Kimberlyn. Hi, Virginia. How are you today? Very well. Really glad to have you all here. And Phil Olalie. That's right. Uh, got it. Is Executive Director of Next Generation Men and Women. Welcome. Thanks, Virginia. Well, thanks so much for being here. And Phil, it's such an interesting origin story for Next Generation Men and Women, started by teachers. How'd they come together? Yeah, so <clears throat> Next Generation Men and Women was was founded by three regular educators here in the Atlanta space who just saw uh, a need for providing positive exposure to uh, work environments and professionals for underserved students, uh, particularly young men of color at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, just the very real socioeconomic barriers that just make it more difficult to to graduate, let alone uh, achieve some degree of post-secondary success. So they started by just piloting a program you know, pulling in partners, local companies, corporations, and physically bringing students into these spaces to interact with professionals and just start to stretch their imaginations around what's possible, what's out there in the Atlanta space, Uh, but realized that it wasn't enough. Exposure wasn't enough. Uh, It was great in terms of being able to um, uh, have targets or goals, but how do I get there? And so uh, Next Generation was really built on this premise that if we can provide exposure to diverse career pathways, professionals, work environments, and couple it with uh, regular professional support, uh, we can create a pathway to success for our students to not only graduate, but to be ready and committed to college or career. So how do students yeah. see people who are working in the field that they want to work in or do you know, don't even know they want to work in? Yeah, I mean, exposure is everything. We, we really operate from a, a mindset that in order to become something, you have to experience it. And in order to experience it, you have to see it. And so what we do is we have a pretty intensive after school program that uh, forms student cohorts starting in the ninth grade. And so we have 15 to 20 young men and young women who start off in the ninth grade and really focus on personal identity, team cohesion, exploring post-secondary pathways. Uh, and then the second half of that program model is building a plan. And so throughout the twice a week after school sessions that are being facilitated by teachers on site and college undergraduates throughout the metro Atlanta area, They're taking what we call exposure experience trips to a variety of different companies, organizations, and college campuses just to see what's out there in terms of industries, to interact with different sets of professionals with, uh, you know, who come from all different stripes, backgrounds, orientations, job functions. And for them, it's so eye-opening because uh, they rarely have access to Uh, know what's out there. And to see themselves in these spaces is such a a confidence booster for our for our youth. Kimberlyn, how about for you at Reimagine ATL? What is how does that program connect kids to to mentors? 
Yes. So um, we have Reimagine ATL was founded four years ago by Susanna Specia with a mission to equip the next generation of storytellers. And we have a vision of a more safe, inclusive and equitable workforce in the film and digital media industry. And so we do that with a three point strategy. We do that by exposing, developing and placing students within the uh, film and digital media industry. And through our exposure, we host several different workshops throughout the year, ones that are free, ones that are um, at a nominal fee that just show the students the different types of careers that you can have in the film industry. Because what we saw was a lot of the times we were going into the schools and talking to them about um, the careers that exist, and they would say actor or producer or director. And we were no, we were like, no, no, there's so many, so many opportunities and there's so many different ways that you can work in this industry. And that's our number one goal is to show them that all of these different careers exist in this one industry. So why the storytelling hook? What is that about? What's the connection there? Yeah, sure. The storytelling came from our founder again, who grew up in Alpharetta, Georgia, and she was just really discouraged because she didn't she didn't grow up seeing other people that did not look like her that looked that you know didn't mm-hmm. look the same as her, and so she wanted to create an environment where students could come together from all different backgrounds, all different races, um, all different socioeconomic status, and just come together with a common. Um, a common way to tell their story. She believed that everyone had a story. So if we could come together and share our stories and share our experience, we could really create empathy. So let's hear one story. Who would you, tell me about a kid. You don't have to say a last name, especially to protect a child's identity. <laughs> but, you know, somebody who came into the program who discovered something and what they discovered. Yeah, so one of my favorite stories to tell is um, we're currently working in one of the non-traditional high schools um, here in Atlanta. And those of you that know what non-traditional high schools are, it's... um, Another, it's an alternative high school where students are sent for bad behavior and they're written off and they're not, their voices aren't heard and no one really wants to hear what, what they're going through. And so one of our students started our program and he was very closed off. Um, and as we began to implement um, social emotional learning skills like meditation and improv, um, he was able to open up. And so in his exit interview, he said that for the first time, he felt like someone really heard him, mm. someone really cared about what he was experiencing. And he really found a way to channel his anger and to channel his frustration through the activities and through the programming that we were doing. So did they, in the end, make something? Did they become part of a production? Yes. At the end of the program, um, they were able to produce their own documentaries and, in fact, tell their own stories so that they're not having their stories told for them. And Phil, I know that's part of the focus for you all is the quiet middle, the student in the quiet middle. What does that mean exactly? So for us, uh, we define the quiet middle as any student who is oftentimes overlooked for enrichment uh, activities or who is kind of off in the back of the classroom, needs an additional nudge or just some motivation to to just be activated as a student. And so uh, we have found that these are the students that have so much potential and promise, but are um, really not targeted or uh, given the attention that they need. So Uh, We find a lot of value in pairing, creating these student cohorts that are comprised of quiet middle students, allowing them to learn from one another, in addition to the mentorship council direction that they're receiving from the teachers and college students who are working with them twice a week. 
How do you find them? Do the teachers identify them? The teachers know who they are. Mm -hmm. um, they're usually silent. Uh, they're off in the, the, the back of the classroom. Um, they don't jump at opportunities to get involved in student groups or extracurriculars. And so, again, uh, when we're talking about susceptibility to uh, challenges, barriers, uh, influences, these are the students who are more susceptible to uh, those challenges and, and barriers. And you mentioned before that the after-school program is teachers and college students. Are mm -hmm. these all volunteers? So we contract work out to teachers and our college students. And yeah, so, I wondered about that because it seems like teachers have so much to do already. Isn't that part of the thinking? Many, many balls in the air. But for us, we wanted to have a resource on the ground that was easy, easily accessible Um for our students. And so we saw so much value in having someone who understands the lay of the land, land amenities, resources on site, but then coupling that with a college student who is only a few years removed from our high school students in terms of thinking about that next step, that next chapter, preparing uh, some sort of plan for uh, making it to high school and beyond and then being able to access the necessary resources and, and support to successfully do that. That's Phil Olalilie. I'm so sorry. Olalilie. Olalilie. Yeah. You know, I had it before the show. <laughs> Olalilie, he's executive director of Next Generation Men and Women. And Kimberly Bolton is with us. She's operations director for Reimagine ATL. They're both really innovative mentorship programs, kind of taking new tacks and new ways of exposing students. And I think exposing is really the key here. What do we know about what mentoring does for kids? Well, in terms of the value proposition of mentorship, I don't have any specific data points to, to present out, but we do know in terms of high school graduation, post-secondary attainment, the populations that suffer most or that are oftentimes oft, more often left behind are uh, pop populations of youth who are socio, uh, have face some sort of socioeconomic barrier or black and brown youth. And mm -hmm. so 2016-2017 um, school year, there are roughly 8,700 high school students who did not graduate and roughly 84 um, high school graduates who did not attain a post-secondary pathway within 16 months of having graduated. And that, that's significant because we know in today's workforce, without having some higher education experience, some sort of post-secondary certification or a training under your belt, it's hard to be competitive in the workforce. It's hard to be gainfully employed. And so when we're thinking about a city that works for all, uh, we have to develop everyone uh, in order to be competitive, in order to provide uh, real on-ramp ramps for uh, for all to uh, just attain, uh, right? Just a quality quality life. Now you uh, work in Title One schools, so these are student populations that are at least forty percent low income, receive federal funds. So a lot of great challenges beyond um, just getting through school for a lot of kids, a lot of basic needs not met. Your organization based in Atlanta, and of course, Kimberlyn, you're, you're working with the film industry and the media industry, so also in Atlanta. Do we know about Title I school challenges? Are they different in rural areas? Um, it's interesting uh, because we work mainly with um, the Atlanta metropolitan area. And, but I have been talking with organizations um, who do work with uh, 
schools in the rural um, areas, and they face similar they face similar um, opportunities and issues because there's just no representation mm-hmm. available out there. And so I think it comes down to a matter of representation. And when you talk about mentorship, um, what in our experience, when students can see people that look like them or come from where they come um, be successful and excel in the space that they want to excel in, it really, really matters. Uh, being someone being someone from a small town in Connecticut, we didn't have a lot of a whole lot of celebrities or a whole lot of successful people come from that space. But to be able to see someone who looked like me and to see someone who could come from the same place, do what I want to do was so, so important. And so that's one thing we try to stress, especially with the mentorship, is to um, allow our students to see those people um, excel in those areas. How do you get buy-in? You obviously have to have buy-in from corporate partners, people who are in the industry, who are scuttling around doing their own thing, letting kids in and working with them, seeing them, mentoring them, which is a one-on-one. Is that correct? Um, our mentorship, uh, our particular form of mentorship uh, looks very different. We do have one-on-one. We have a lot of group mentorship and a lot of job shadowing opportunities that we have available. Um, but it's a really good question that you ask because um, a couple of years ago, the Arthur and Blank Family Foundation, they've been supporting us for a while. They came to us and they said, you know, we really love what you guys are doing. We see that you're really providing the workforce development training for the students. We see that you're creating this pipeline to place students directly into the industry. However, we'd love to see more support from the industry to do this. And so what they did was they gave us a multi-year grant to help leverage um, the ind- the film and entertainment industry so that they could help support what, what, what it is we're doing. And so at the beginning of uh, 2017, we launched the Reimagine ATL Alliance. And it's a network of companies within the film and entertainment industry who come together and say, I understand the mission and I understand and believe in the vision of a more safe, inclusive and equitable workforce. And so not only will we invest financially, but we will invest with more career exposure opportunities for your students. We will stand there. We will be mentors. um, We will provide um, education. We will provide resources for your students. So for you, Phil, uh, you just got an ambitious ex-grant, right? Uh, Congratulations on that. Thank you. But I'm curious where you mentioned something about kids going on to post-secondary school or secondary school educations. Not everybody is built for that. How do you work with students who aren't necessarily college bound? I think our position is to provide options. And so we're agnostic. We're not tracking students to four-year institutions or colleges. We're not tracking them to to your vocational or technical schools. We are simply saying these are the opportunities and possibilities that exist out in the workforce and out uh, in the world beyond high school and providing them with a representative sample of what's out there so that they can exercise their own agency to pick and choose what's right for them. So if it does uh, look, if, if it does look somewhere in, in, in the flavor of, you know what, I, I want to pursue this 13 month apprenticeship program with uh, an automotive um, uh, factory. It's our job to provide them with information on what that path entails in terms of wages earned, in terms of a career path for them. And if they choose to still pursue that, we're going to back them 110 percent. I'm wondering about the transition for you. We've just got a minute and a half left. You said you started out working with African-American young men and have since transitioned, include women. What was behind that decision? For us, it's just realizing that these challenges aren't just affecting our young men. 
Um, these are deep uh, barriers and uh, challenges that are holding back progress and success for our young women as well. And so it was unfair for our organization to be providing these opportunities and resources exclusively to young men without providing those to also uh, to our uh, young women who are interested in learning and just gaining exposure to the professional world, um, higher education, and then having the support to uh, access and attain a post-secondary pathway of their choosing. Phil Olalier there, executive director of Next Generation Men and Women. I also spoke to Kimberlyn Bolton, operations director at Reimagine ATL. That is it for today. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Leighton Rowell, and LaRaven Taylor. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Don Smith, our dean of grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. And Sarah Shariari is managing editor for GPB News. Music today by Kevin Morby. Our interns are Allison Krausman and Jake Troyer. We invite your comments, questions, and civil complaints at our Facebook group, GPB Radio On Second Thought. We're on Twitter at OST Talk. You can email us at onsecondthought at gpb.org or leave us a message at 404-500-9457. I'm Virginia Prescott on Facebook at Virginia Prescott GPB, which could frankly really use some love. We're here Monday through Friday at 9 or anytime when you subscribe to our podcast. Hit the Programs tab for On Second Thoughts at gpbnews.org to subscribe.